0: The Canadian immigration process can be complex and frustrating. With the Canadian Immigration Department making it virtually
1: impossible to speak to an officer, there are few places to turn to for trusted information. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest on immigration law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer Mark Holthie, as he is joined by industry leaders across Canada sharing insight to help you along your way.
0: Hello, everyone. This is a special recording that I'm doing with my special guest, Pantea Jafari. Uh, Pente is an immigration lawyer here in Canada who has something that we absolutely need to get out uh, for as many people as possible uh, because it's, um, well, as you can see, what will it take to get justice from IRCC in Warsaw? And some of you are probably wondering, what the heck is going on here? What is this topic? Why is it so important that Mark is not only releasing it here on the Canadian Immigration Institute YouTube channel, which is traditionally express entry and all these kinds of things, but also on the Canadian Immigration podcast, so it's broadcast on live uh, on both of uh, broadcast on both of these feeds. Um, so, Pantea, like, tell us a little bit about this situation that we're that we're sharing here. Give a little teaser, and then we'll get into some introductions, and then dive in a little deeper.
1: Sure. Um, by way of a slight teaser, the issue is that. Um, a group of applicants have demonstrated that there was a violation of procedural fairness in the assessment of their underlying applications. And that was a very difficult process in and of itself, which we'll get into. But uh, since that finding by the court last summer, the uh, court also set some parameters for its reassessment. And it seems like those parameters are not being followed. And so the clients are back in the same situation that led them to court in the first place, which was that their applications were being assessed by a standard that was previously undisclosed and seemingly hadn't been met in the application materials. So there's a high anxiety and risk of refusal again, which um, I'm continuing to try to thwart through continued litigation.
0: Exactly. And so basically for those of you who are listening for the first time, why this is important is because you need to know what the actual requirements are when you're applying for something. You're paying money, you want your application to be assessed properly and fairly, and um, if the government just keeps changing the rules or doesn't even have rules that you know about and then rejects your application for those mysteriously unheard of or unknowable rules, well, that's not fair. And Every average person, you don't have to be an immigration lawyer, you know, who practices in the federal court to understand that. And this is what we're talking about here. And we're not talking about one person that Pente is representing or, or is assisting. We're talking about a whole class of people that were, well, I can say whatever I want. It's my, it's my feed here that were, you know, that were really lumped together and unfairly treated by Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada. So that's what we're going to be talking about, and in particular within the self-employed category for permanent residents, which is quite a unique little beast in and of itself. Absolutely. So that's what we're talking about here. But before we dive in there, Pente, I want to know a little bit more about you. So you're a Canadian immigration lawyer. We know that. How did you get into immigration law?
1: Uh, well, I'm a first-generation immigrant and I immigration was always just a natural calling. It is something that's been a part of my life, uh, a reality that we faced with family, friends, community members trying to come over the years. And it, um, I, I innately understand their struggles, which helps me tell their stories. And so, like I said, it was a natural calling.
0: And so where do you practice?
1: In Toronto, Ontario.
0: In Toronto. Okay, so flash forward. Now you've got how many people are involved in this in this action?
1: So the interesting thing about this litigation is that it it has implications for other people. So the impacted group is about seven, eight hundred people and growing. Uh, There were one hundred and ten people in the original group, Tafreshi v. MCI. And there is a derivative second group litigation that has about uh, 30 applicants presently and that group also is expanding.
0: And And then there are lots of
1: people that aren't part of the litigations because I have no access to them and the court is um, not ready to force the minister to put them on notice of these litigations. But it's something that I will be asking for in the continued work that we're doing.
0: Absolutely. So one of the things I want to alert our listeners to you know of somebody that happened to file a permanent resident application under the self-employed category in the past few years and you can clarify a little bit more Penta later but um, was rejected and you feel wow that was not very fair um, and you didn't have a clue or know where to turn listen in to what is transpiring here and part of the reason that it's the, you know the number of people that are involved is growing is because the word is getting out through other means And if uh, traditionally with the class action lawsuits, all of the potential people that could be affected, there's a notification sent out letting them know, hey, you, if you meet these requirements, contact this number and you can become a part because your rights may have been affected. And um, that's not happening here, apparently, um, at least in the way that we would traditionally see it happen.
1: And that's one of the bigger problems with this case, because it's proceeding as a managed litigation. So that means that they're all individual JR applications that are being funneled through the court process together because they have legal issues in common or factual circumstances in common. And so one of the great benefits of class actions is exactly that you have one, you know, symbolic client that meets the circumstances, and then you do the work, and whatever its result is, it will get funneled out to the the class members that are that can be identified. There, there is an identifiable class in this situation, and that was actually recognized by the court. But um, it. it For a lot of legal and practical and logistical reasons, which we probably won't have time to get into, it is managing as a uh, proceeding as a case management, which requires each person to step forward and say, I want to participate. And so in the initial Tafreshi litigation, I we did a lot of outreach to try to um, get people aware of what was happening? Because for the most part, when you have a refusal, you wouldn't know that there's a systemic issue behind it. That's exactly
0: what I was going to ask Pentea. Like how in the world did you figure out that this was happening on a grand scale? You know, when refusals happen, people don't advertise them all over. Not like the approvals. Oh, I got my application done on my own. It was so easy. You don't need to get anyone to help you. Like people are all all over the map in terms of advise you know letting people know of all the successes. But when your application is rejected, you think, oh well, I must have done something wrong and there's just silence. So how the heck did this come to the attention of of of, of you?
1: Hence why it's really important to reach out to those people because they wouldn't even be looking for news about the refuse yeah. application. But in terms of how I came to know about it, we as lawyers oftentimes we don't practice silo application types you know like I know some lawyers practice like refugee law from two countries and they have their document packages ready and and go Mm -hmm. for the most part we um, offer services in a wide span of application types and programs Uh, but in the consultant world sometimes they are very siloed They, they focus in on a certain type of application and so how I became aware of this situation was we had the benefit of a couple of um, consultants who do a lot of these applications. And uh, in the one case over 500 in another case, I think over a hundred, I can't remember exactly, but they were able to discern a a change of behavior and and a pattern of decision-making. So the whole point of the litigation, the whole thing that came about was that, Uh, most of these, all of these applications were being processed by Warsaw, by Ankara initially. And as of 2018, they got transferred to Warsaw because of a growing backlog. And that transfer led to now starkly different process for the assessment and also standards to be met during the assessment. And so it became very clear there was something really nuanced and different happening.
0: Gotcha. So as in, as these individuals um, were slowly starting to realize hey like there's other people I'm not the only one that had my application refused for these reasons that I didn't even know I was supposed to demonstrate and and so as these individuals kind of started to you know collect and and these uh, you know immigration consultants that started to see these patterns <clears throat> then then what was the next step so they said can you help yeah they said
1: can you help we uh, there were so the, the one consultant had a lot of refusals already, but had about eight people willing to step forward and challenge and they, him and other consultants were going to go and try to get their refused clients to join this group. Um, and at the beginning, it wasn't a group, We we didn't know if we'd be able to Grow it enough to have a group. So what we decided was we were gonna either do individual JRs but replicate the concerns, the factual patterns, and whatnot, but we were thankfully able to grow it into the group. And the the significance of the strategy to grow the group, um, which has been demonstrated, is that when people challenged the refusal individually in this exact same category from the exact same visa port, like on all fours with the applicant group when they challenged it individually it seems like an individual refusal so you look at it and you're like well i I can see that it's reasonable an officer would be concerned about xyz and therefore it becomes uh, uh Ad- adjudicated as a reasonable decision. It wasn't until we were able to grow the group above 60, 70, 80, and in the end, 110, that we were able to demonstrate that there was a systemic problem the behind the decision making. And mm-hmm. especially through ATIP evidence, which as you know, is extremely problematic. They are often important information is often withheld based Completely on different redacted. exclusions yeah. and things like that. So it's actually one of the comments the judge made, which is that if the redacted a are showing what is what was demonstrably a calculated decision to deprive applicants of their right to procedural fairness and you know kind of imagine what was behind the scenes that wasn't disclosed and that's key because the a tip evidence demonstrated that IRCC had done an internal investigation into this program because it was so costly and problematic for them. They wanted to know why are so many people getting refused and why is it so um, expensive for us to administer this program? There's lots of interviews and and procedural fairness letters and it goes back and forth for a long time. What's going on? And the the result of their own investigation from the visa posts that manage these applications was that there isn't enough upfront information on who we're looking for in this program and what the requirements are. You know, so people who shouldn't be applying like small time farmers or or whatnot are applying when they shouldn't. And it's only because you're not putting the instructions up front. And so IRCC is aware of this as of at least 2015, but chooses not to do anything about it. And then uh, the same investigation internally also tells them that this is a highly litigious program and to, to ward off litigation at the very least, there are some procedural steps you should follow, such as document requests, interviews, that's exactly in the ATIP material. But then Warsaw makes a decision despite all of that to not send a document request, to not conduct interviews categorically not even case-specific, which is supposed to be. It's supposed to be at an officer's discretion whether those things are necessary. But when we cross-examined the program manager, he testified under oath that we categorically did not send uh, document requests, certainly not procedural fairness letters, and certainly didn't conduct interviews.
0: Okay. So obviously, they were overwhelmed with applications. They were looking for a way to call them out, get rid of them. And so they made a decision playing the odds that they could get away with just refusing without actually having to give people an opportunity to to provide the additional evidence. So I'm assuming and, this is what was going through their minds. Is and and would we'll just hope because people are not going to realize and they underestimated. I think the consultants and the number of applications coming through where they could see these patterns. Exactly. It was a it was designed to call out this massive backlog of applications that were now shifted them from you know to Warsaw from Ankara. Is that is that essentially? kind of what was happening in the background?
1: That's certainly my impression of what's happened. And And we can take
0: whatever impressions we want, Pentea. We can make whatever we want. Um, Speak freely about what what we really feel is operating. And it's been a long time since I was an immigration officer, but even now we can look and we can see the hell that the officers are going through with this massive backlogs of applications and how in the world do we get rid of them? And I see, you know, you see parallels to what they're doing On the positive front, like they could have just approved these instead of just rejecting them all. And you look on the visitor visa side, what this new, you know, these new steps they're taking to basically remove bona fides in the assessment for visitor visas overseas to get rid of these hundreds of thousands of applicants in the background. We're just going to approve them unless they're a security risk or, you know, something else. And uh, they could have gone down that path with these applications, but they chose not to.
1: I, I, in an article I wrote for Sila once, that's exactly what I, what I said. I said, you know, there's definitely a problem. There was a huge backlog and they wanted to see what to do with it. The whole reason it was being transferred out of Ankara was because it was growing and they weren't able to get to it, but you can do that honestly. And in a forthright manner, like they did with the FSW cases, just close them all all outright and say, you know, we're sorry, we just can't deal with it. Um, Or you can do it in the manner that they've done with the temporary foreign, foreign the the TRVs, the visitor visas to say, okay, well, we just can't get to a proper assessment of those nitty gritty stuff. So we'll just mass approve you all. But instead they did this insidious, almost behind the scenes type of thing, which the court Uh, found as a as a finding a fact was a calculated decision to go this route instead and like you said they were probably playing the odds and saying okay well a couple of them will go to court (laughs) but you know in the end it'll be faster and more efficient likely
0: yes all right so you've got so you so you brought it forward you organized these people and and uh so now you're you're going off to court so what we, yeah, did that so play we out? went
1: off the car. So it was a, a tremendously difficult and long process. It took four years to get to the full hearing and the judgment because, like I said, we were trying to improve the, the evidence base. And because other people were going forward one by one in the meantime and building mm. that case law where these uh. decisions were being found reasonable, it required so much more maneuvering, strategizing, uh. evidence building to to prove the systemic issue behind the scenes. So thankfully, we were able to do that last summer. We got a judgment from the court, which was, you know, phenomenal. Yeah, Yeah, I read it. A great, yeah. Huge. As you know, it's a a huge decision in immigration law overall, the cost award and everything, but also tons of legal principles embedded in there that are just so juicy nuggets for future litigation and and use in ongoing litigations. Um, But... Unfortunately, the story didn't end there. So, the, oh, Well, the I was court... going to say, Pente, I yes. was going to
0: jump in. I was going to say, so you got this wonderful decision. So IRCC immediately reversed all their decisions, sent out passport request letters, and they're all pretty much here, are they not?
1: <laughs> well, no, let's backpedal. <laughs> the decision itself said um, we were able to prove, as a matter of fact, that all Ankara was setting as the standard to be met before was a general plan of let's say I'm a writer, I'm I'm a sports coach, whatever. A general plan of this is how I'm self-employed in this category in my home country. I've, you know, reached out to gyms and I offer a few classes here. You know, my aunt uncle knows all these people. I offer one-on-one classes, whatever the case is. You say, this is what I'm doing here and I intend to do X, Y, and Z when I come. So as long as you had a general reasonable plan for what you were gonna do when you came, That was all that was required. So if, for example, you said, I'm gonna contact community newspapers, put out some ads, maybe go to, uh, you know, like a uh, fun, uh, like a festival or whatever, where I can get in touch with people, I'm gonna reach out to gyms, whatever the case was, as long as that seemed reasonable enough, that was all that was required. And And, and I'm uh, gonna
0: jump in here again. So just to clarify, (laughs) if we are to go to the document checklist today, it is not going to provide any more detailed requests for additional information than what you have just described was the, was the world in Ankara. Because yeah. i filed my own self-employed applications and I see nowhere, anywhere there, that it says I need a detailed business plan um, you know, on how I'm, I'm going to transition to Canada. It's not anywhere. But somewhere, I don't know why, somewhere I heard from someone that that might be a good thing to include now. And it may possibly have flowed from what you're doing, Penteo. so Potentially, the, yeah. and that's the,
1: the case is complex and important yeah. for so many reasons. It's it's so difficult to talk about it in piecemeal fashion. But the court basically f- uh, found that there were two legitimate expectations of the applicants arising from the circumstances of how things were progressing and the assessments were being done before this transfer. One was there was an operational manual that is on IRCC's website until today as an active manual, until today, that is apparently became uh, uh, inoperative in 2016. And that is obviously, for legal practitioners, if uh, you're familiar, it's the instructions to officers as to what to look for when they're going through these assessments, and it's uh, you know, I'll call out to the legal practitioners of these are the things you should make sure you've addressed in the application. Okay, yeah. so in terms of the self-employed program, the the assessments of work experience are are relatively known. Okay, you know, give me contracts, give me sample this that, no problem. But the the eligibility criteria of ability and intent is. Not at all how it's being uh, performed. Ability and intent is very vague overall, but the, the factors noted in the uh, operational manual relating to ability and intent were all financial. So it was kind of looking to see, do you have the financial means to do the things you're saying once you come? Most of the parameters were about that. Almost all actually were about that, unless it was specifically for the farm program and stuff. And there's absolutely nothing about the other eligibility criteria of significant contribution uh, to the Canadian So let's take
0: just a little step back so all of us practitioners are familiar. We understand the foundation. Ability and intent to do what, Pentea? So if you're self, self and, and maybe employed. let's, yeah, and let's maybe yeah. just take another step back just so people are like, what is this whole self-employed? I didn't know I could apply if I was self-employed. Everybody should apply. Okay. We're talking about yeah. a very narrow, narrow, narrow area, you know, absolutely artistic ability, athletic ability, right? You're, you're a, a self-employed individual who traditionally is involved in the arts. You're a musician, something like that. There's no way you're going to get through express entry because you're self-employed. And generally speaking, you know, there's huge limitations. So Canada wants people of significant cultural and and social value that are going to come and, you know, they're a professional athlete and they're going to come and help train future Canadian Olympians. That's what we're talking about here. And yes, ag was a part of it until that disappeared, agriculture. But Really, that's what this is about. So then yes. ability and intent, can you infuse that explanation and so your listeners uh, understand how that fits into, which is really a critical component to what's happened here or what I should say is is causing the, the, the rift. It's ability and intent. It's to do what?
1: Sure. So the, the primary eligibility criteria is that you have been self employed in the arts, athletics or farm and now farms removed, uh, for minimum of two years in the past five years. If you've demonstrated that the next eligibility criteria is a demonstration of your ability, which is usually just gleaned from your experience and your intent to become self-employed in that same manner inside Canada. Once you get here. Okay. And there's a throwaway of significant contribution. So these are basically the three elements of the program and work experience is relatively straightforward enough. There are enough indications of specifically what they're looking for, for that evidence in the document checklist and in the program guides that people know how to demonstrate their work experience. Fine. That's done. The ability and intent was this obscure thing where you, you weren't really sure, what it, it is exactly that they want with it, because it's, there's no documents relating to it on the checklist. There's very minimal, uh, there's no reference to it really in the uh, applicant's guide, but on the guide for officers, this operational manual that we were talking about, the elements were all financial, right? So uh, from that, most people gleaned, okay, so you need to show that Whatever you did to be self-employed there has a potential to work in Canada. And as the program manager said, the very reason why business plans aren't required in this program is because in a lot of um, situations, your demonstration of what you did reasonably means you will continue to be able to do that here. If I'm a a famous, uh, you know, singer in my country and I have a following internationally, of course, it doesn't matter which country you're presiding in at that time, that yeah. I- I revenue is going to continue, and your your um, showmanship, your your abilities are going to grow and expand. Yeah. So b- business plans at the time, court dicta said they were not required. They were actually to be discouraged because of the design of the program. And then the throwaway of the significant contribution, the court had has also ruled to this day, that that's basically just a throwaway to word against frivolous applications. It, 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 there's no real assessment to be made there. And similarly for that, there is there is nothing on the checklist, nothing on the guides, and anything like that. So an applicant looking at that application at the outset to see do I meet the eligibility criteria? Should I apply for this program? Is basically just looking at their work experience for the most part, okay? Mm -hmm. And that's what was happening based on the manual at pretty much all the visa posts, but also specifically in Ankara, um, that was what was happening. Ankara, interestingly, was requiring business plans, but it was upfront about that. It would send document requests to people and say, okay, I don't care what the federal program says. I specifically want want to see X, Y, Z. So that's probably where you gleaned, you know, a business plan might be helpful. But, you know, representatives would would even say in their submissions, the court has said this is not required Mm -hmm. and it's not a required document. But since you're asking for it, okay, I'm making the gesture by providing a minimal business plan. So they were like 10 pages, super generic. Like I said, I intend to call the community papers or reach out to gyms or whatever when I come at that level. And they were for the most part being approved by Ankara without issue. So. The court ruled that there was a legitimate expectation arising from the manual that the focus is going to be the manual also um uh, infused within it procedural fairness rights very interestingly during the eligibility phase as well as admissibility so mm-hmm. your readers may or may not know and the legal practitioners probably do that usually when we talk about procedural fairness On the immigrant side, because there are reduced procedural fairness rights overall, really those rights kick in if there's an admissibility issue. If the government thinks you've misrepresented something, they have an obligation to let you know and give you an opportunity to respond or whatever. It's not ordinarily held to exist at the uh, at the eligibility eligibility assessment phase that you're expected to put your best forward. You either meet the criteria or you don't. When the criteria is clear, like the express entry system or whatever, that's easy to do. But when it's not, and the design of this program was that they basically knowingly, purposely or not, but knowingly didn't put that information up front, the the requirement was to build that that procedural fairness into the application process. Because the idea was we can't get a checklist that's all encompassing. Look, these people are so different. Some of them are farmers. Some of them are athletes. Some of them are like singers and actors and stuff. We can't conceive of, you know, a checklist that would do all of these things, which is ridiculous because when you think of the spousal sponsorship program, we have three Mm -hmm. different checklists. We have one for sponsor the spousal. We have common law. We have the conjugal. We know how to do gradations of checklists in a similar program, but they didn't do it for here. So what the what the requirement was for the, was during the process to send them a document request to say these are the things that in your case are applicable. And interestingly, those document requests are identical for anyone. It doesn't matter if you're a farmer or whatever. So clearly, they could be upfront, but mm-hmm. we'll leave that aside. Mm-hmm. And so um, so these legitimate expectations were live and valid the court found at the time that these applicants were filing their applications in comes warsaw the inventory gets transferred to warsaw and warsaw makes a categorical decision in defiance of the internal recommendations to put a document request to do this to do this that they're not going to send a document request so the only thing applicants had to assess what was required was that initial uh, document checklist, yeah. and then starts refusing applications, not even on the things that are known, but starts taking meticulous issue with the business plans and says, the bu- business plans don't, uh, they're not, they don't source every fact that you've said. I don't know where you got this fact from. They don't um, quantify uh, tangible, like your service offerings. They A, a million things million nitty-gritty issues that they took with the business plans that became the reason for refusing everyone mm. so okay, I, you might call I that nitpicking. i might call that yeah. an excuse to refuse right. you know
0: so this internal assessment that warsaw ignored was this something that came from nhq in ottawa and it was uh, supposed to be utilized across the network for all self-employed like this internal investigation or was it something that was done localized in that area and even though they said okay this is really what we should be doing here given the fact it was kind of the way that things were rolling out in Ankara we're just going to deliberately ignore that too like was it was it a a kind of a global overarching kind of a um, a directive I guess internal directive that they ignored or was it something they'd just done internally like a self-audit
1: yeah so the the investigation was wholesome i'm not necessarily sure if it was the national headquarters but it, it was at all visa posts with these kinds of inventories um and the result seemingly was also at the macro level but these discussions about what to do and the litigious nature of the things the 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 requirements of procedural fairness for the program we're all in the investigation. So these are responses that visa post managers are sending saying, this is the inventory. This is the problem. This is why it takes long. It goes to litigation. It comes back, blah, blah. So that, that was the investigation. And then based on that investigation, the, the people, the high, level IRCC agents that are discussing the inventory transfer and what to do with it, including the visa post managers in Warsaw, then have this internal communication of, okay, when you get their inventory, you should send out the document request. You should do this. You should do this. And a document request is even drafted by Warsaw, but then there's some decision which they didn't confirm from who, but clearly management level that says, we're not going to do this. I don't know based on what, and based on whose authorization, but it, on on cross-examination, it was confirmed that we're not sure, but some, at any rate, a management level made a decision not to send them out. And categorically, like I said, not on a
0: case-by-case basis. Yep. Wow. Okay. So thank you for going through that. And it's important for people to oh. understand the context. I know that's a little bit heavy, you know, for for a lot of the viewers, but, but ultimately the decision was positive, right? So the decision that came back was positive positive. And so carry us forward from there to today, because you would expect yeah. that you've done all this work, you've proven this, or at least in court, you've been able to demonstrate it. And the courts have said, yes, we agree. So then normally, maybe start with normally, what would you expect to happen after a decision like that? Yeah. And then transition into what we've seen, which really is driving the whole nature of this podcast and, and this video that we're, we're putting up on, on uh, yeah. YouTube. Yeah, so the the
1: judgment was really huge um because like i said normally you you prove a transgression by an officer in an application we prove transgressions of law by the management of at least the management of warsaw probably in in obviously connection and communications with other more senior agents And it's a process that took four years in the face of individual cases, finding each of those refusals reasonable. So imagine the daunting legal work it took to do that. So once we got that finding, the court also awarded um, the applicants nearly $50,000 in costs, 25 for fees, 25 for, for disbursements, which in my opinion is demonstrative of how significant they found this problem to yeah. be, this transgression yeah. to be. And the the significance of the efforts it took to, to demonstrate the problem. So once you get this cost word, to me, that's a pretty strong pronouncement of yeah. you got this wrong, yeah. really yeah, wrong. Guilt. Shape up, <laughs> Guilt, right?
0: yeah. yeah. But
1: so well, I would have expected that based on that, um IRCC would be much more uh, conciliatory to the reassessment process because once we demonstrated and the court found that that was the Ankara process and ordered IRC to uh, process the applications based on the standards in Ankara and also found that almost all of these applications would have been approved outright had they been processed by Ankara I would have thought okay there's going to be an assessment of these applications. Many of them, you can readily say they would have passed the Ankara test, give them their medicals, move forward. And then maybe the few where you, there might be some legitimate concerns, or you know, you want updated documents to see if X or Y panned out, means. have That's them reasonable. deal with that. Mm-hmm. So we actually entered into a negotiation phase with the minister to try to get that, to say, okay, I, I investigated each client's case one by one, the ones that hired me post the conclusion of the actual case, which was Tafreshi. Then we started negotiating uh, what I had hoped to be on a one-on-one basis to say, okay, this one's fine. This one's fine. Send them forward, send them forward. And then let's deal with maybe five, 10, 15, whatever's left over. Lots of issues have happened. I can't, don't have the time to get into the nitty gritty, but the end result was that's not what happened. The end result was, um, they, not only are fully reassessing all paramet- parameters of the application but they are now imposing new standards to be met yet again
0: oh my god unexpected
1: exactly the same conduct that led to the litigation in the first place is now happening in a new round so in the first round the issue was that they started taking meticulous issues with business plans that had never been seen before okay So we've proved that that can't happen. The other thing we argued throughout the four year litigation was the reasonableness of that type of assessment. Unfortunately, the court didn't make a judgment on those obviously Mm. because it found the procedural fairness. It doesn't need to go further, but what we, we were trying to circumvent was for the minister to be able to refuse these applications again, by simply adhering to superficially some process. Okay. I'll send you a procedural fairness letter. I'll send you a document request, but then in the end do the same thing, but obviously the the judgment didn't go there. And now we're seeing exactly the the behavior I was trying to prevent, which is aside from mismanagement of the file, there's been now two rounds of refusals in error, which I've had to push back against, but the ones that aren't refused, they are getting pretty much every single person is getting a procedural fairness letter that says, I'm not satisfied now anew of your work experience, even though that was never a reason for refusal in the first beginning. place. Okay. Um, I'm not satisfied about your ability and intent. Quantify for me the significant contribution you will make to Canada. Like these are all things that.
0: This seems the... very vindictive, Pentea. Like yeah. I can see, I can see, and I, I'm not going to name any names, but I can see a program manager, you know, who made the initial decisions that IRCC is kind of hidden in the background. And we're not sure exactly who, BS, that's garbage. You know bloody well who, who made this decision, but you protect your own. And I can say this cause it's my channel and they, whatever. Um, and, I mean, and, then an this pers- and then this person I'll is this person it. is pissed off because now this, this bloody lawyer is sticking her nose in and they don't know what we're going through here. And these people aren't really gonna add anything to Canada anyways. And so they're just trying to, you know, to, to find their way in and, and we need to make decisions. We need to operate. And now you're making us go back. I'll show you, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be pushed around by some lawyer and uh, I've never liked lawyers to start with. And, and so now I'm going to make your life a miserable hell. I'm going to do everything I can to make this as difficult as possible. You got a problem with it. Go back to court again. So, and there's cowboys all over the place. And apparently there's cowboys in Warsaw and, um and, you know, and and people, you have to be so careful because you don't want to offend people. and I, I recognize that. Many of my friends are still working with IRCC or they work on the border or whatever. But the reality is that kind of stuff is poison. And that's why we have so many issues, not just in that region, but you look at Africa generally. And I don't know if you've uh, remembered or followed some of the um, the adoption cases Alicia had worked on um, you know out of Nigeria, and it was unconscionable the things that IRCC was doing alleging that the family was bribing officials in Nigeria because the the process went forward faster than the two or three years that most families should have been separated from their children. So I have very little patience for this. And I I see this as as management, call it what you want. There's a person up there that's got a massive ego that figures they can do whatever they want with no check or balance. And when they've been called to task, they're going out kicking and screaming. So as far as I'm concerned, there needs to be a management change in Warsaw. And if IRCC doesn't get that, then, well, lawyers, good lawyers like you, Pentea, who are working virtually for free to advance this cause because these people deserve to to have, you know, to, to be treated fairly. Like, I just have no patience for it. They need to do some accent personally. Journey Business Plans is the leading immigration business plan writing service provider in Canada. With more than 10 years of experience, Journey has grown to become a trusted partner for immigration consultants and lawyers. Journey focuses on preparing business plans for a number of immigration applications, including intercompany transfers, startup visas, significant benefits, self-employed, PNPs, and so much more. Their main competitive advantages are reliability, responsiveness, and overall customer service, and I can attest to that. For those of you who don't yet know about Journey, ask your colleagues about them. They're amazing. Or even better, try out their work. You can visit their website at www.joorney.ca and mention you listen to my podcast with the code Journey 10 That's H O L T H E J O O R N E Y number 10. And that'll provide you with a 10% discount on your very first business plan for new lawyers. We're so grateful to have Journey Business Plans as the title sponsor of this podcast. There you go. Yeah, there's my uh, there's my opinion as I listen and let this build up inside and yeah. So, okay, I, so so I so what are your that. steps? Like so what are you doing right now to try to to deal with this other than this massive load of of no, new requests all trying to point and find a way to make it just miserable for these people because they stood up for themselves. Y-
1: you know, I, I, I have to agree. I, I'm not sure if they're trying to wear down the applicants or or me personally, mm-hmm. because they know throughout the court case and the oral um, hearing, what came across was that this was a crazy situation that is going forward on a, on a low bono basis to, to get access to justice for these people that um, were being denied it, but also because of circumstantial circumstances like the devaluation of their um currency in the meantime are Mm -hmm. are really drawing at straws to be able to continue to access the court Um, and so they know the applicant group has no money and so maybe what they're doing is to try to drown out these voices because it is I won't even say rare, I think no one (laughs) would have continued on now a pro bono basis for a year to try to get justice for these people. And that's what's had to happen, because I I just can't seem to walk away. So we've We've now returned to court two more times. What you're saying is, okay, go to court. That's what we've had to do. The first time we went to court because the minister took a very strange position. So we had to negotiate because we had to see how the the court judgment applied to the underlying cases. There were 110, eight lead cases. So we had to see how that judgment applied to 102 cases. So we entered into negotiations with the minister. And even though I confirmed throughout multiple times that i'm only retained by 76 of the applicants i'm acting only on behalf of 76 of them we negotiated in good faith for whatever amount of time in the end suddenly the minister took the position it's all or nothing you know you either accept what because we were negotiating timelines for reassessments and whatnot you either accept it on behalf of everyone or no one at all and i'm like well you are a lawyer you understand that i can't accept something on behalf of people I don't represent. So it forced us to go to court the first time to, to figure out how the judgment's supposed to apply to everyone else. We did that. Then we started the update phase of the applications. And so I was trying to get clarity from the minister to be ex- exactly sure at that same time on a macro level. So each person didn't have to pay for it on an individual basis of what exactly do you want to see now? The court has ordered you to, to act, to assess these in terms of the OBH or Ankara's practices, but I don't want any surprises. Does that mean you want a business plan? Does that mean you want to assess work experience all over again, even though it wasn't a re- reason for refusal? So we kept trying to get clarity on this throughout the negotiation phase. Like I think something like nine months, I can't remember. Oh and then I had to, in the end, just go back to the, to the court to say, listen, this is ridiculous. I'm trying to prepare the submissions for my clients at this point, much less 17 of them. Uh, but I, I need to know how to do this. I need to know exactly what the standard to be met is. And at the 11th hour after months and months and months, the minister actually gave me the reason, but because I had already gone to court at that point, the court gave me a second cost order to say.
0: This is a waste of time. We shouldn't
1: have had to return to court for this. So then we go, we've submitted the update packages and now we're waiting for assessment, other problems in the meantime, like they weren't adhering to the 90 days they have to render assessments or whatnot. And then we get to these rounds of refusals that are causing shockwaves of panic across the applicant group, which I push back and say is unreasonable, is unlawful. And then they say, oh, no, they were actually even sent out an error no, 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 we're not gonna get into the legality of it. They were just an error, you know, that would take weeks to acknowledge and multiple follow-ups. But right now we get these rounds of the procedural fairness letters. And to me, the procedural fairness letters on their face demonstrate that they're a of the court's order. Because for example, the more most obvious one to say, quantify your significant contribution when the court has already ordered to do it in terms of Ankara, which was just asking, okay, so who you're going to call when you come type of thing is, is definitely not within the bounds of that. But also the court has said that business plans aren't required. What applicant would know how to quantify significant contribution on their own? I've even asked business plan writers, how would you do that? Some of them can't figure out. They were like, well, I guess we could, I mean, because a cultural benefit, you really can't quantify. But they would say, okay, well, we'll build in that, you know, you'll, you know, enter this contract, you'll rent here. Okay, those logistics that we have in business plans, we can quantify that. But the the contribution you're going to give to people- Yeah, social and cultural
0: benefit. Like, how do you do that? Like, yes, I can see financial. You know, Pente, when I- (sighs) all these things are racing through my mind right now. Yeah. One, if this is what happened in Warsaw, you cannot convince me that this same pattern hasn't been happening all over. Otherwise, IRCC HQ would have axed the people involved, moved them over to a different department and put someone else new in place. So that's one thing that I see. And I, I just wonder how widespread this is. And two, okay, look, if you have issues with the program, you've had no problem shutting things down in the past, Take the owner-operator, LMIA, whatever. If you see abuses that are happening, and, and let's face it, if someone can't qualify through the economic programs, they're always looking for another pathway through. And it's, it's natural. People are going to flow to where the opportunities arise. And sure, if you feel like people are abusing the program, that there's all these frivolous applications going through self-employed because they don't qualify through express entry or another means, fine, then deal with the program. But to punish people who are submitting applications based on the rules that IRCC has laid out, it is not their fault. And if you want to make a change, this is, for Like this is not the way that you do it. I think it's utterly embarrassing for IRCC how they've handled this. And I take great pleasure in sharing with whoever will listen how they've really acted poorly. And we'll pull the minister on here. I I wish I could pull him officially on, but we'll pull him on to to have you make your little statement to him at the end of this video (laughs) as to what you would have him do about this personally. Because Minister Fraser has, this is your department. And if you're not aware of this, then, well, either you've had your head in the sand or your your department is operating independently from those who are running the show. So, yes. Yes. Okay, so at this stage, then sorry to cut in there. I was just okay. it kind of builds up, and then I it's frustrating. You know, it's yeah. absolutely I can frustrating. I can't imagine. You can't, you can't imagine what I have your to do. life to this
1: exactly to yeah. keep calm during these calls yeah. and interviews. You've been when very I'm just diplomatic. I will give you
0: that. You've been very diplomatic, and I know you still have to Five deal years. with them, right? Five years, right? So I'm the one who can tell yeah. it like you know, like I I feel it is. So,
1: yeah. so where we're at now is because of these what i consider to be very visible transgressions of the court's order forget whether it amounts to bad faith i mean that's a whole other can of worms but it's at least not in the confines of the parameters of reassessment the court has set for them so i've returned to court a third time on a pro bono motion again to say like i I want the court's assessment of this and unfortunately the applicant group has met with a, a problem, which is that the Justice Brown is not in the court right now, for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. He's expected back in the fall. So now they have to wait till the fall the to to yeah. hear this. And what's been so interesting is that in the two times we've had to go, go up to court, of course, uh, the minister is arguing functus, you know, you've got your judgment already. If there's a problem, file new JRs, bring a new group, whatever. Wow. And in the second um, motion, The court confirmed unequivocally, I am not functus. I will hear further concerns if the applicants are having issues, because I think the court felt what a David and Goliath issue this is becoming. Because, I mean, (laughs) to have to return to court to adjudicate even just the mechanics of how the reassessment is supposed to happen because the minister keeps flip-flopping is significant. A second cost award in an immigration case is... You, you I never think unheard of. They're unheard I've of never generally. heard of that. Yeah,
0: and but the, a, the court yeah. has
1: found it important enough to do that second symbolic cost award against the minister to say this is not okay. It's not going forward in an okay manner, and to then now have these procedural fairness letters that are like so clearly not okay yeah. is mm. is just beyond infuriating. I I feel for myself for sure mm. to have to continue to have the weight of this situation on me when the the clients clearly have hit rock bottom. Mm -hmm. But I I especially feel for the client group like this is crazy. They've had their lives in limbo for six to nine years. Imagine litigating for that long to just see if your future is going to be in Canada or not and amidst yeah. terrible circumstances back home where people are fleeing their their security yeah. issues, their financial issues, economic, the economy is collapsing. Like just crazy things that, that literally these, every day Pentea,
0: These are not immigrant investors, okay? These are not rich people who are just loaded with wealth and looking for a way to pull it out of their country, inject it into Canada and parachute over. Like yep. these are self-employed people.
1: Yeah. These, These are, people, are your
0: musicians. These are yeah, your, giving, you know, your artists. You're like, it's just, it's just unconscionable.
1: Giving your your children classes for ten dollars an hour, like,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, yes,
1: it's very problematic, unfortunately. So now I'm very hopeful that, unfortunately, the circumstances have escalated significantly since the judgment. um I'm really hopeful the court's gonna s- step in and, you know. I yeah. my apologies but smack some sense into the minister and be like yeah. this is definitely not what we had in mind. And uh hopefully even give us substitute's judgment. I know that's, you know, something the court is really loath to to walk into yeah. but I think the circumstances warrant for it. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and there's
0: there especially the, with the large not- scale systemic approach. Right? And and it just I can't like when I think of the ramifications how like this is in the context of this one type of application, which through just miraculous fortune, there was one immigration consultant or two that had enough of these that they could, they could see exactly. the pattern. Like we don't I, see it. We, we and, and this exactly. is one location, one geographic location. This is why it was identified. And 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 we don't practice that way of individual clients that may be submitting to offices all over the world. So we don't see, but it's, it's just what a, What a serendipitous, I guess, kind of thing. and probably not the best word to use because it's been so miserable for everyone, but to actually have this happen. And, you know, like it or not, I understand that IRCC has a difficult job to do. They have high volumes of applications. People want to come here. But I'm sorry, if you're running programs, you cannot operate unchecked. You cannot operate and do whatever the heck you want and just ignore, like, basic principles, you know, of of law. Like, the rule of law is not to be just tossed. Especially yeah. when you, yourself, are the ones who are creating it. And so, um, yeah, they that's can't live by the... a different standard. Yeah, and, that's, and that's one why of I appreciate biggest... you holding them to that.
1: No, yeah, absolutely. That, that's been the biggest driving force behind the case, behind my continued pro bono involvement, everything. It's exactly that. The Canadian government, who's touting democracy all around the world, is... Acting in manners behind the scenes that, first of all, is continually withheld from the public through access to information requests. We don't even understand what's happening behind the scenes. Yeah. It, it, things like the automation tools being used, like Chinook and whatnot. Yep. Think of how many years after the fact that even we're came on to the public yep. radar, right? I saw Stephen share an A tip recently that for uh, China and India, they were using automation tools as early as 2018 right? But it's only yep. now we're getting the the belated ATIP production yes. of redacted and highly redacted, to to where we still don't together. really
0: know. Yeah. All, it, so all when, under the guise of program integrity, program that's integrity. It. That's all we hear.
1: No, it's it's all in the pursuit of lack of uh, embarrassment, in my opinion.
0: But well, when you that's see why we're that, here, Pantea. And if it absolutely. requires public shaming to drive our immigration policy in this country, which appears to be the case, then so be it. That's what we will do if that's what they require us to do. But it is we'll it's very it, it. like it's downright shameful how this has all played out. Cause once again, if you feel these people are are just not great candidates for permanent residence in Canada under your magical economic plan, fine. But you cannot just ignore your own instructions, your own rules, and just and just ad hoc, just eject people and hope no one's gonna complain. You can't do it. And we're Be seeing it across it. more. The, we're seeing it across more lines of business than just self-employed. You know, yeah. whether it's study permits or visitor visas. If you really have that big of an issue, then throw back the old quotas. Put them back in place. If you're concerned about overrun of applicants and abuses of the program, then put in your quotas. But at least give people a fair chance to know what the what the case is to meet, what the test is. Right? Absolutely. That's all we're asking.
1: Because maybe they really don't qualify. Self, maybe they're exactly not the. They yeah. won't apply in the first place. Yeah. The and we as representatives won't
0: submit the applications, right?
1: Yeah. Like express entry, right? Like we yep. know, okay, you are you have no realistic chance. Even if you meet the minimum points, okay, yes. you meet the minimum criteria. You have no realistic chance on the points quota. No problem. No. They don't file the application. Right. If you know that information up front, you can make an informed choice. Mm-hmm. It's It's forget f- f- you know, responsibility and, and all that it's even good contracting. You can't offer the contract of a PR application to someone when you don't intend to, to approve them. If there's a pre assessment that this isn't the right person for it, but they don't know they should know. The, the the internal investigation revealed, for example, that the farmer program was a, a, the biggest weight of this category because it was small-time family farmers applying when that wasn't the intention of the program. So right. why don't you put in the program criteria? We're looking yeah. for must you know, have,
0: yeah, annual revenue, must have this like yeah.
1: exactly minimum yeah. this, minimum that, whatever. That would immediately weed out. All of the small-time family farmers that you think shouldn't have applied in the first place, but don't accept their application and then say, "Well, I didn't want this person in the first place, so let me find an excuse to refuse them."
0: Can Can you imagine, Pentea, if this had been identified or targeted toward Chandigarh, with the with the agricultural applications coming through self-employed there? Can, do you honestly believe that this didn't happen there? Hell yeah, it did. There's no exactly way it couldn't the problem. have. There's so no way it couldn't So now that this issue
1: have. is on my radar, now that this issue is on my radar, I am seeing it all over the place. All over the place. I'm seeing it all maybe over the place. Maybe management and in I'm Warsaw was exactly transferred from,
0: from Chandigarh. Maybe they yes. relocated the Chandigarh uh, management. And I'm, I'm saying management loosely. I'm not identifying any yes. particular individuals. Yes. But maybe that mentality is like, hey, that worked really well there. Let's supply it here.
1: Yeah, so my mind constantly goes to, oh my goodness, how many hundreds of yeah. cases of this have happened in the past, present, happening that we have no idea no about because we have mm-hmm. no public disclosure of what's happening behind the scenes. And that's why automation tools are so alarming because already when a human is making these decisions, they are making processing decisions that. Disadvantage certain groups of people. They're not making this type of, uh, you know, excuse-based uh, self-employed assessments out of the you, the London office or the France office. They, they're not. They're just not. That's a factual reality. Yeah. They're making these kinds of processing decisions to, to make calculated decisions to deprive procedural fairness rights in Ankara, in India, in China, in, in Africa, wherever yeah. else. Right. Yeah. And places so where they think they can get away making, with
0: it. Yeah. Exactly. Where people don't have where people don't have the resources or even the awareness that this to is just unfair. You know, countries where they're used to being screwed over by their own governments. I shouldn't say Bad that. It's not, that's a little extreme, but, but they're used to being, you know, having people, you know, just treat them poorly and having to deal with it. And that's just life, but not Canada. If we're holding ourselves up as one of the glorious countries in the world, so pro-immigrant and just a wonderful place to come and be here and celebrate in freedom and equity and diversity and all the things that we, you know, we espouse. Well, this goes absolutely in the face of it. And, That's um,
1: what so many of the group members have said to me. They're like, we would expect something like this to happen in our country. But yeah. Canada? Canada's yeah. making these kinds of decisions where even after the court says you were wrong, they're still well, continuing this kind of conduct? Yeah. Like, their mind's just blown. Yeah.
0: Wow. Which is okay, why so, the
1: work is so much more important.
0: So, yeah. Panthea, where do we go from here then? So as obviously with the messaging, um, like I said, I'm, I'm going to pull up, and those who are watching this as a video, um, we have Minister Fraser who's joined us here. We're going to bring him right up here, big front and center, <laughs> put him right between us. So he's now standing right in front of us in, in our Hello, video. Hello,
1: Minister here. Fraser.
0: Yes. So if you could make a kind request, and, and we are both very mindful that the minister doesn't make all decisions. Now you refer to the minister is doing everything, but obviously it's delegated authority, and people are underneath. He's not; he doesn't make every single decision. He has to trust the people underneath him to do what's in best interests of the department, department and government. But um, but if you could encourage Minister Fraser, because right now he probably is the only person who's in a position to deal with this quickly. So, what would you say to Minister Fraser right now about what's happened, and uh, and rec- any recommendations you might give him because he may not know how to resolve it. So any recommendations you might have for him that he could take back to his department? And I've had discussions with him and his predecessors in the past, uh, you know, through prior roles that I served, uh, you know, within our associations and, and sometimes getting it to the minister's ear is what gets things done. So what would you say?
1: Well, in terms of a recommendation, first of all, I think this program critically needs a revamp. If, The applicants aren't meeting your vision of who you want to see in it you need to change the instructions up front make very clear who you want to see what documents you want and what standard they have to meet to be approved in this program is the standard direct contact having ready contracts to go if they're gonna come is it is the standard just knowing what they want to do is it quantifying significant contribution for example what is it that you want to see in this program people have a right to know that before they prepare an application it is not fair to at the end when you're getting ready to refuse them say oh by the way you know prove all these things to me and if not i'm i'm gonna refuse you that is give not, you seven fair. Days that is to not how we do this that is not how we we conduct um ourselves in canada and, I, and i'm you so shocked that this is happening repeatedly and pass a court order. But in terms of this applicant group, and I wrote to the the minister's lawyer, of course, to say, whatever you might think is your legal parameters, that you have a right to argue X, you have a right to say, I think this is a reasonable standard. Whatever you think is is within the bounds of, of the law that you have access to, you should decide not to exercise that you have wronged this applicant group and deprived them of so many opportunities for so many years there is such significant damages and prejudice to this applicant group from the proven calculated decision to deprive them of their rights in the first place, that you should be acting more honorably, trying your best to facilitate the easy and expeditious processing of these applications. You should not be enabling and allowing your agents to put more rocks and hurdles in their place, more legal battles for them to jump through, or for counsel to have to continue to do on a pro bono basis this is really not how we do things in canada and i'm so beyond shocked to see that after 5 years of litigation on behalf of over 100 100 people and now you the minister knows because the the court is very well aware there are hundreds of other people that are affected that need to be you know aware of this situation and come before the court, you should send a quick email to everyone that was refused out of Warsaw to contact our office and to, or a lawyer, not necessarily our office, yeah. but to to see what their rights are in light of the Tafrishi decision. The Tafrishi decision proved a systemic problem and people who were refused out of that visa post won't know that won't know that based on their individual assessment especially if they self-represented or especially if they were represented by by representatives who don't normally or do a volume of self-employed applicants this might never be on their radar i myself wasn't even on social media before a year ago to to get this additional access and to get all this additional uh, connection to try to get the word out it's the minister's responsibility to address this situation I really hope you, you step in, Minister Fraser.
0: All right. There we go, Minister Fraser. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. And you're more than welcome to come on and join us too on, a, you know, on, a, on one of our live streams or recording just to talk about this. Um, we, we open that invitation to you. Now, as we let the minister go, my question is, what about the people that are left behind? What about the people that are not specifically included in this right now? Do they have any remedies? If they listen to this and they're like, holy cow, I got a refusal right in that same time frame for the same frivolous reasons. And um, I didn't think I had any remedies or anything available to me. You know, we've got limitation yeah. periods. We've got a whole bunch of things affecting these people. You know, is there any recourse or any ability for these people to, to, to seek some form of, of remedy um, or to get so- involved in any way?
1: So very interestingly, one of the things I tried to negotiate with the minister early on was when we got the judgment that this is a systemic issue, but only 110 of them happened to come forward. I asked the minister like, okay, the rest of the people impacted. Can we get them on board? Can can we get your consent for them to be reopened as well and whatnot? And so initially, I think there might have been some appetite, but that door very quickly closed shut. Yeah. And so there's a second tandem derivative group litigation, like I said, Tanhai v. MCI, and that's for everyone that is exactly similarly situated but just wasn't part of the initial litigation. Initial and interestingly, the minister has conceded the legal issues uh, apl- applicable to them, that, you know, the Tafreshi case, the, the legitimate expectations found there should apply to them as well, obviously. It, it seems relatively office. What the minister is is Uh, contesting is the extension of time that would be required for them to have brought this forward. Interestingly, so the the Tafreshi group, many of them were well beyond the limitation period to file their JRs. You know, Mm -hmm. their refusals were years before, but the minister conceded the extension of time during oral submissions and said, we don't take issue with that so everyone was granted we didn't even go that was supposed to be something that was adjudicated on a case-by-case basis all done thank mm-hmm. god we thank the minister for that position right. suddenly for this group they've taken the opposite position yeah. they've said that we can test the extension of time they should have known about tafreshi or they should have come forward now problems control with that. Yeah. a how would they have known about how, how? i tried yeah. so hard to get media attention on this beforehand most of the media attention was in the immigrant community itself however limited we once we were getting judgments we did get a national post and toronto star article both but Mm -hmm. not necessarily reaching everyone and then also this entire protracted battle has demonstrated that it's reasonable for someone to have thought I'm not sure if I can get justice from the Canadian legal system. I don't want to be part of this anxiety written train ride for years to come. Let me see what happens and then I'll come forward. Right? Right. So in the Tanhai group, half of them never knew about Tafershi in the first place and found out about it post judgment and contacted our office. Some of them knew, but didn't trust the system and didn't, didn't. Thank you for pointing that out,
0: Pentaya. Yes. I have found routinely, and this is a global phenomenon, that people are just accustomed to just sucking it up when bad things happen. And they are absolutely loath to come forward and challenge authority or challenge any of the decision makers with respect to their, their refusals. It's very difficult, I think, even here within Canada, for people to trust, to, to to place trust in any person of authority because in their own countries where they came yeah. from, they they could not. And people got ahead through corruption, through a complete lack of you know, adherence to any rule of law. And so what kind of an image, and I'm going to pull one more time the minister up because he's the face of immigration. So Minister Fraser, what kind of an image are you portraying or projecting to the world with these decisions? Like if our own departments are, are, um, are, are left unchecked with being able to make whatever decisions they want and not following the rule of law, What message are we sending to people that are looking to come to Canada to, to, you know, to escape that treatment in their own countries? And And how um, much
1: more egregious is that to continue that conduct post-court judgment that fined you $50,000 unprecedented to say that that conduct was not appropriate? And so I think the minister's conduct is actually proving how reasonable that extension of time is. It is absolutely reasonable for someone to say, I don't want to be part of this up and down roller coaster of trauma, anxiety, my last dollar being spent on this court process. I want to see what happens first. And so, so this is an issue. This is one of the main issues in the second litigation. Otherwise, more than half the group could just be reopened right now on consent, on court order. But that's now something that we have to demonstrate, whether it's reasonable that they didn't join the first litigation. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that that is a fallout of that is at the outset, I asked the the court because the court in Tafreshi, very importantly, admitted as a as a matter of fact that it is an active stakeholder in how this situation is managed because otherwise it's going to have its doors flooded with hundreds of individual applications so they Conceited, yes. it. they're not neutral. They are an active stakeholder in how this is done. So when we came up on TANHAI, I said, and I had a tip. how many people were refused all throughout these years. The ATIP was withheld from me for the, for the entire life of the Tafrishi litigation and suddenly produced to me right after when I followed up. And they said it was inadvertence that it wasn't disclosed previously. Fine. Uh, f- now we know how many people are affected and it's an ongoing number. Okay, fine. So I asked the court to to uh, to get the minister to send a notice to every one of them because it can very easily do that. We all know, easily. you know, now all the people that are eligible for the postgrad extensions, you just get an email accept or exactly. not, right? So they yes. have a very easy manner of doing this to just let them know, this is your last opportunity if you want to come forward, go ahead. The court wasn't prepared to do that. And of course, the minister didn't consent to do that. Now, one of the other issues is I'm trying to keep the litigation open for anybody else that might now see this, see something else and come forward. Mm -hmm. Because in my opinion, this is going to be their last opportunity, right? And and this is the
0: tip of the iceberg. This is the tip of the iceberg. And IRCC knows that. And they know that this has potential impact all across their global network to all the other visa offices and many other lines of business. And all it takes is hopefully our practitioners who, who run high volume practices will start paying attention to the, you know, to the, um, uh, the patterns that they're starting to see at some visa offices. Because you may very well be the only way that this stuff comes to light. And, uh, I, you know, the, this obviously can't continue. And um, maybe internally IRCC is working on it, but I have to assume that that's not the case given how they're treating, you know, all of the litigants that are a part of this action. All right. So, so I will put, so we'll let the minister go. So you think about that a little bit, minister. Think think on that. Um, so what I'll do then is, what is the best way for people to contact you? And to, is there like Phone, a link or? email? Okay.
1: Uh, yeah, well, I will put the link in the comments, our contact yeah. info, our phone number, our email. You can contact us on WhatsApp. I know that app doesn't work in some countries, but mm-hmm. uh, that's one of the free ways to contact us. Um, and then on all the social media channels, uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, Insta, Facebook, we've got all the channels live, please get in touch because this really likely will be your and last opportunity to join yeah. time is yeah. extremely yeah. Sensitive, time is sensitive.
0: Yes. Great. Well, thank you so much, Pente. It was a delight having you here. I really appreciate all the work that you're doing on behalf of all of us. And obviously, when you first signed on to this, you had no idea where it was going to take you. So we very much appreciate your willingness to stay at it and not, you know, it's hard, right? You got a family. You know, it's not like you have nothing else to do other than this particular line of business. Like the reality is this is as much a labor of love as it is any kind of an economic benefit to you and your firm. And so we Really, There's really been no appreciate. economic benefits. Yeah, <laughs> Definitely.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm way out of pocket for everything, yeah, yeah. but that's a different yes. story. But I really appreciate mm-hmm. the opportunity to come on because mm-hmm. uh, I think the situation is growing more critical uh, as the d- days go by. And it, it's, it's just a, a, a verdict of what our present immigration system is becoming it's it's something that we all need to be worried about and it's not a one-off situation Mm -hmm. for sure many people dismiss what's happening with this case saying oh that case that one-off thing in warsaw no absolutely not this is now critically what we will be contending with on a daily basis going forward especially as we move towards automation and you know systemic sorts of decision making issues that will come forward and uh So I think it's a a very critical, uh, piece for all stakeholders, practitioners, the courts, IRCC, everyone should be coming to the table to say like, this is going to cause the system to break for sure. If these sorts of conditions continue, if these sorts of inability to get. A change of practice continues, the entire system is going to come crumbling. it's already on the verge of being completely broken as it is so we all need to step up to to try to make some necessary significant change
0: excellent thanks so much penthea really appreciate you you joining me me. we will have you back again as things unfold and if we need to uh you know bring the minister back on to have uh yeah to to for us to educate him a little bit more on what's really happening in his department we're we're here to help right so thank you so much All right. Thanks so much. Take care. Have a great day. See you, everyone.